You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHub.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Simon Egan from University College Cork. His paper was entitled an unwelcome inheritance, the House of York, the wider Gaelic world and the Tudor succession. It's a well-known fact that upon taking power in 1485, Henry VII faced a series of challenges both domestically and externally. In England, the new king uh, was forced to assert royal authority um, within his newly won kingdom and he ends up facing off a series of rebellions and revolts during the first 15 years of his reign, um, an achievement which was largely derived from his ability to raise large military retinues from Lancastrian and former Yorkist affinities. Um, the new Tudor dynasty was also vulnerable to a series of external threats. Um, to the north in Scotland, Henry faced pressure from the Stuart monarchy under James III here in the middle, and especially his son, um, James IV. Uh, on the continent, the sister of the last Yorkist kings, Richard III and Edward IV, uh, Margaret of Burgundy, she sought to destabilise Henry's relatively fragile hold in England and famously sponsored the two Yorkist pretenders, Lambert, Simnel and Perkin Warwick, the two Yorkist pretenders. So, within this highly unstable and uncertain international climate, Ireland becomes a focus for many interests hostile to the new Tudor regime. And it's well established that there was a strong degree of support for the House of York in Ireland, largely within the colonial heartlands of the eastern seaboard. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Richard, Duke of York, famously used Ireland as a base during the Wars of the Roses, uh, initially as a safe haven when he was driven into exile in um, 1459 after the Battle of Ludford Bridge, and later as a base of operations for invading England in 1460, although York, um, he fell soon after the invasion at the Battle of Wakefield in December 1460. Uh, his son, Edward IV, however, uh, he successfully seized the English crown. Now, Edward, he also enjoyed strong links with Ireland, um, the Geraldine affinity of Desmond and Kildare in particular, um, and following Edward's death in 1483, his brother Richard III, he also maintained close connections with the Fitzgeralds, the wider Geraldine affinity. Now, standard narratives of late 15th century and early 16th century Ireland, they, in general, they point towards the following, that despite something of a shaky start, Henry VII managed um, both to secure and safeguard successfully against the situation in Ireland. This largely centred on his management of the then Irish Lord Deputy Garrett Moore Fitzgerald, 8 Earl of Kildare. Now, the 8 Earl of Kildare is in many ways synonymous with late, medieval, uh, late, sorry, with late 15th and early 16th century Ireland. Um, as a historical figure, He's attracted uh, a huge amount of scholarly attention from both, we'd say, the so-called nationalist perspective as well as the revisionist school of thought. Now, Kildare supported the first of the Yorkist pretenders, uh, Lambert Simnel. 
His kinsman, Morris, ninth Earl of Desmond, um, openly supported Perkin Warbeck. And while Kildare did not openly declare his support, it's likely he gave some form of um, support to Warwick at this time. In any case, Kildare is eventually removed from the Lord Deputyship and he's arrested in February 1495 by the new Lord Deputy, Sir Edward Pinings. The Earl uh, spends a brief period of captivity in England and following a royal marriage to the King's cousin, Elizabeth St. John, he is deemed suitably rehabilitated. His eldest surviving son from his first marriage, um, Gareth Og, the future ninth Earl of Kildare, he's, in, he's also surrendered as a surety for good behaviour. So in effect, in effect, he becomes a royal hostage for the crown. Kildare, the eighth Earl, he returns to Ireland, resumes the Lord, Deputy, Lord Deputyship, and historians are in broad agreement that he served as an effective deputy right down until his death in 1513. Now, I don't want to focus too much on Kildare alone today. Instead, I'd like to focus on um, the wider context surrounding developments in late 15th century Ireland, with a particular view to how events within the wider Irish sea world, Scotland in particular, how they shaped Irish affairs. There are nevertheless a few issues I'd like to point out at the beginning here, though. Firstly, it's more or less accepted that Kildare, following his incarceration, uh, was remoulded into a loyal and effective servitor of the Crown. Secondly, scholars have gone even further to suggest that the Crown's decision to reappoint successive members of the Kildare Fitzgeralds to the Irish deputyship down to the 1530s. That underlines both their high standing in the eyes of the Tudors, as well as the relatively low position occupied by Ireland within the early Tudor mindset. This could very well be the case. Um, Kildare's apparent rehabilitation on the East Coast, however, should not obscure the fact that the Tudors faced a number of very serious challenges on Ireland's western seaboard during the late 15th and early 16th century. Many of these challenges derived from the activities of the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell, who, by the close of the 15th century, they have re-established themselves as one of the most, if not the most powerful, Irish dynasties. Um, the O'Donnell lords, moreover, um, they enjoyed a strong relationship with the House of Stuart, um, a relationship which opened up uh, another fundamentally explored, unexplored, sorry, international dimension to Irish affairs, one that was completely inimical to English interests in Ireland. So, what I'd like to do now is um, explore how developments on the west coast of Ireland, chiefly the rise of the O'Donnells, how this impacted upon um, the wider set of archipelagic politics. And essentially, I'd like to argue for the necessity of paying, paying closer attention to the Gaelic world as a, sorry, to the Gaelic-speaking world as a force within British politics. Um, so first of all, I want to look at the basis for the strong level of Yorkist support in Ireland during um, the 15th century. A considerable body of research has been completed on Richard, Duke of York and Edward IV's relations with the colony. Aside from the work of Catherine Sims, little attention by comparison has been devoted to the, the Yorkist links with the Gaelic world. Now I'll talk about this map in a little bit more detail shortly. Over the course of the mid-15th century, the Yorkists, they developed strong links with both the O'Neills of Tyrone, based here in central Ulster, and um, the MacDonald's Lords of the Isles, who are, uh, who are based uh, in this kind of region blue here. And, uh, many of these links between the Yorkists, the O'Neills, and the MacDonald's, uh, they were cultivated during the earlier reigns of Henry V and Henry VI. James Butler, the so-called um, fifth and uh, the so-called fourth and white Earl of Ormond, he played a leading role in building up links between the O'Neills and a number of their satellite lordships, such as the Mac um, located here. 
The O'Neills also developed strong ties with the O'Briens of Thomond, uh, down south here in modern-day County Clare, and the Burks of Clanricard, centred on modern-day Galway. Okay. So that's very important. The relationship with the MacDonald Lordship of the Isles in Scotland, if you wouldn't mind clicking back to... Yeah, that's perfect. Um, that appears to be managed largely from London, but we do see a number of colonial officials from Ireland um, travelling to the Western Isles, travelling to Scotland to negotiate with the MacDonald uh, leadership in the 15th century. Okay, So there, there is a nexus of connectivity there between the English administration, Dublin, London and the Isles. That's important to, to bear in mind. Now, alliances with these powerful families, with the O'Neills, with the MacDonalds, they help to safeguard English possessions within the wider Irish sea world, um, right from Wales all the way up into Ulster. Um, the O'Neills commanded considerable military resources, while the MacDonald Lords of the Isles, um, they famously possessed a large fleet of galleys. And without going into too much detail, this network of alliances had been in existence since the mid, four, mid to late 14th century. Um, for instance, the MacDonalds had an alliance with the O'Neills, which I'll talk about um, in a little bit shortly. But this network, this kind of Anglophone network, if you would call it that, between the O'Neills, the MacDonalds and the English Crown, that's kind of set up in the late 14th century by Richard II, and it continues on through loosely right up to the, the later 15th century. Okay, or the mid-15th century at least, anyway. Okay. The O'Neills and MacDonalds themselves, they were also closely allied to one another since the late 14th century. And to a large extent, this was an alliance of mutual geopolitical necessity. Their arrangement derived from the threat posed by the rising power of the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell in um, kind of the early to mid-15th century, were located here in modern-day Donegal. Just as the English cultivated alliances with the O'Neills and MacDonalds, the Stuarts, the Royal Stuarts in Scotland, they look to the O'Donnells um, for an alliance. Um, an alliance from, from the perspective of the Scottish Crown, an alliance with the O'Donnells um, offers the opportunity to undercut English influence in Ireland, but it also acts as a check on MacDonald expansion in Scotland. So the MacDonald's western flank is threatened with this arrangement. Okay? Now, James I of Scotland, um, he had some success in this regard during the earlier 15th century. Uh, the English administration in Dublin, um, they were particularly concerned about the relationship between uh, James I and the O'Donnells. Um, nevertheless, in 1433, the O'Neills and MacDonalds joined together, um, and they launched a dual-pronged assault on Tyrconnell. So, the MacDonalds lead a fleet from Antrim, they sail around the coast here, the O'Neills go through central Ulster. Um, they forced the O'Donnells into submission, um, and very quickly the O'Donnells' position on the West Coast implodes. And over the next couple of decades, um, the O'Donnells play a very limited role in wider Irish politics. They're plagued with dynastic infighting, feuding, etc. Okay? To a large extent, a lot of the feuding is sponsored by the O'Neills as well. Okay? So it's a blow for the Scottish monarchy losing the O'Donnells. Okay, that's quite, that, that's quite important. Um, so, the O'Neills begin consolidating their position in the mid-15th century, um, and to a large extent, this is of benefit to the English crown. James Butler, the fourth Earl of Ormond, the White Earl, who I mentioned earlier, he um, has a series of agreements with the O'Neills, as do other colonial officials, and he actually brings an army from the colony to crush an O'Donnell uprising in the 1440s. Okay? So there is uh, a relationship developing here 
which the Yorkists later inherit. In Scotland, the, the MacDonalds, they are no longer faced with this threat of the O'Donnells on the western flank. So this allows them to begin forcing concessions from the Scottish Crown. By 1440, Alexander MacDonald, who is the third Lord of the Isles, he's been granted the coveted Earldom of Ross up in the top section here in grey. Okay, and um, so this grant effectively from the Crown, it simply confirms MacDonald domination of much of Scotland's western and northern seaboards. So, from the House of York's perspective, the rise of the O'Neills and MacDonalds offers them a great deal of security during a potentially turbulent period in English politics, okay? Security within the, the outer reaches of the archipelago. And it's no coincidence that Richard, Duke of York, developed strong links with the O'Neills um, in, the, in the 1450s and 1460s, while his son and successor, uh, Edward IV, develops links with both the O'Neills and the MacDonald Lodge with the Isles. Okay. Again, just returning to the, the butlers briefly, why don't um, the butlers who fight for the Lancastrian cause in the war, why don't they manipulate these alliances? Following the White Earl's death in 1452, his successors are largely absent in England, so control passes to the, the, the Yorkists. By the early 1470s, management of these Irish alliances with the O'Neills, etc., um, that's passed to the House of York's main Irish allies in the colony, the Fitzgeralds of Kildare, then led by Thomas Fitzgerald, the 7th Earl of Kildare. So it's very important to note that House Kildare, they inherit some, not all, but they inherit some of the alliances which later characterised elements of the Kildare ascendancy. The stability afforded by the O'Neill alliance, among other alliances, um, is part of the reason why the 8th Earl of Kildare was able to support the office pretender Lambert Simnel in 1487, when he crowned him uh, King Edward VI at Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin. Now, Henry VII's capture of Simnel after the Battle of Stoke in 1487 naturally saw Kildare take a more cautious line with the English king. Um, Henry VII, he nevertheless remains um, suspicious of his Irish Lord Deputy. And as mentioned above, Kildare, he's eventually arrested by Sir Edward Pynings in 1495 and briefly imprisoned in England before his marriage to Henry's cousin, Elizabeth St. John. These measures all lead to what historians have deemed Kildare's rehabilitation in the eyes of the Crown. The Earl's view was going on to expand and consolidate English power beyond the pale during the, early, the late 15th and early 16th century. But is Ireland as, really as secure as scholars have suggested? What else is happening in Ireland, particularly on the West Coast? So, as mentioned, the O'Donnell, Lordship of Tyrconnell, up in the top left-hand corner, and they implode during the mid-15th century and play a very limited role in wider Irish affairs during these years. However, by the early 1460s, a new leader emerges, A. Ruo O'Donnell. Under his leadership, the O'Donnells gradually rebuild their position on the west coast. Beginning in Tyrconnell, they gradually expand southwards into Connacht, uh, rebuilding alliances with families such as the Burks of Mayo. Um, these kind of factions in red here. This map is based on another map I've drawn. So, roughly speaking, those in red are allied to O'Donnell. Um, those in blue were part of, kind of the O'Neill's wider network of allies. It's a loose network, um, and more, much of it is upheld through marriages, uh, often intimidation. Okay? This is forged in the late 14th century, and to a large extent, it, it is held together in, well into the 15th century. Okay? Over time, it does become controlled more in the hands of larger dynasties such as the O'Neill's, the O'Brien's, Fox Kendrickard, the respective colours each. So the O'Donnells begin expanding again. In 1469, for example, uh, Eru O'Donnell, he defeats a combined O'Brien-Burke 
So I had O'Brien and Burke of Clan Rickard Army um, in Southern Connacht. Um, so within the space of a few years, um, the O'Briens actually switched their allegiance to the O'Donnells. Um, Eirua, the Lord of Tyrconnell, he marries Fenula O'Brien, daughter of the O'Brien clan chieftain. So their position, the O'Donnell's position on the west coast, gradually becomes more and more secure. In 1474, O'Donnell then raises a large army from Ulster and recently subjugated territories in Connacht, and he leads a hosting eastward from the Atlantic seaboard right across to the eastern seaboard. So he cuts straight through the island, okay, and he, he's able to threaten the colonial <coughs> heartlands of the eastern seaboard. Uh, it's very important that the O'Neills can do very little to contain the O'Donnells at this time. This is largely due to the outbreak of dynastic infighting in Tyrone. So what, what had happened to the O'Donnells in the earlier 15th century, it's now happening to the O'Neills and their allies. Okay? So it's a complete reversal. Developments in Scotland also have a bearing on this. Um, as noted, the MacDonald Lords with the Isles, that became exceptionally powerful during the mid-15th century. Uh, however, during the last quarter of the 15th century, the Scottish Crown takes a more active, indeed more aggressive, approach to the West Highlands and Islands. Beginning with James III, on top here, but it's really accelerated by James IV, the Crown starts dismantling the Lords of the Isles from the early 1470s onwards. The Earldom of Ross is forfeited in 1474, the Lords of the Isles itself in 1493. Now, the relatively swift collapse of the MacDonald Lordship was precipitated by a number of factors, including, again, dynastic infighting, um, which successive Lords of the Isles had managed to guard against in the 14th and earlier 15th centuries, but they are unable to do so, do, do so due to weak leadership and the growing power of the Campbells of Argyll here. Okay, the Campbells are very, very important. Uh, the O'Neills in Ireland, they're no longer as powerful as they used to be, okay? So... Um, Ireland, the western flat flank, is less secure at this time. Um, now, so with a weakened lordship of the Isles, but a weakened only lordship of Tyrone, the Stuart monarchy is capable of intervening, meddling in Ireland, and they do so through the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell. Um, for example, in 1495, Aero O'Donnell he travels to Glasgow for a meeting with James IV. Um, it's well known that James IV supported the Yorkist pretender Perkin Warbeck. And um, the pretender gave the Scots leverage over Henry VII, but the alliance with O'Donnell was, I would suggest, far more important than has previously been argued. Um, the alliance opened up Ireland's western seaboard to uh, Scotch intervention. Um, the military power of the O'Donnells gave James another card to play in Irish affairs, one that could be used to destabilise English power in the island. Okay, so just kind of concluding section. Um, how do these developments inform our understanding of early Tudor Ireland? Kildare was certainly aware of the growing threat posed by O'Donnell in the western section of the island. His former O'Neill allies, uh, they're no longer capable of containing the problem, and it appears by the close of the 15th century, Kildare sought to reach a settlement with O'Donnell. In 1499, O'Donnell travels to the Pale, where he meets with Kildare. Uh, this is recorded in, in, in the Irish Annals. What's discussed with both men is uncertain, but O'Donnell departs with Kildare's second-born son, Henry, whom O'Donnell agrees to take into fosterage. Now, as noted, what was discussed between both men is uncertain. However, the fact that O'Donnell departs with Kildare's son now meant that he has some degree, at the very least, he has some de degree of leverage over the Irish Lord Deputy. Remember, Kildare's first-born son, Garrett Oak, he's still been held at court in London. O'Donnell isn't recorded as handing anyone over to Kildare either, so... 
this, this becomes quite striking when one considers that both, um, both Eru O'Donnell and his son and successor, A. Dove, they remain in contact with the Scottish court over the next decade and a half. The O'Donnells appear to have maintained an agent at court in Scotland, and they also develop close ties with the, camp, with the growing power of the Campbells of Argyle, who appear to have acted as important intermediaries between the Scottish Crown and Tyrconnell. An examination of events such as Nakdo, the big battle in 1504, also raised some interesting questions. Generally regarded as a major victory for the English Crown, Nakdo, I would suggest, does very little to alter the balance of power on the western seaboard. Um, as mentioned, the O'Donnells had been expanding southwards into Connacht during the 15th century. Um, Kildare, through his alliance with the O'Donnells, becomes ensnared in the O'Donnells' various wars on the west coast. Looking at the various annals entry, sorry, looking at the various entries in the Irish annals, it's possible that it's very possible that O'Donnell could have brought up to half the troops that fought at Nakdo, suggesting at the very least again a certain degree of dependence upon the Lord of Tyrconnell on Kildare's behalf in the early 16th century. Six years later, Kildare attempted to take on the Burks of Clanricard and O'Brien's once again. Um, the O'Donnell chiefs and Aidan O'Donnell, who had succeeded his father in 1505, he brings a much smaller force with him to the battle at O'Brien's Bridge in 1510. He only brings about 200 men, keeps them in the back of the army, and when it becomes clear that um, the battle is lost and Kildare has been routed, O'Donnell simply packs up and leaves. Okay, So Kildare is exposed in that regard. Returning to Scotland very briefly, just to finish. Um, the f through the first, throughout the first two decades of the 16th century, um, O'Donnell he maintains contact with the Scottish court, whether Kildare knows about this is uncertain. Um, however, if Kildare was aware of any connections, it represents a serious security breach from the perspective of the Tudors in Ireland. Most strikingly, in 1513, O'Donnell travels to Edinburgh, where he attends a council of war with James IV as part of the upcoming Flodden campaign. Uh, he enters into a treaty where um, he effectively promises to become a subject of the Scottish Crown and he agrees to provide uh, military support to the, stu the Stuarts when called upon. If the Annals of Ulster are to, to be believed, James IV actually considered uh, an intervention in Ireland at this time, and he's only dissuaded from doing so by O'Donnell himself. Okay? James instead commits to the disastrous invasion of England, uh, which ends in a total catastrophe on Flodden Field in September 1513. Still, um, these broad sweep of activities... Do they point to a high level of stability and security in early Tudor Ireland? I don't think so myself. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.